fear is a really appropriate topic for me right now because last week was one of the most fearful and financially insecure weeks of my life. I've already felt strapped and picking and choosing which bills to pay when a big unexpected bill came in and I felt crushed. And it caused something really ugly to happen. Somebody decided to become a patron, which means she decided to pitch in a monthly amount. And when I looked and saw that she was chipping in a dollar a month, rather than feel grateful, I felt resentful and angry. And how can this pay my bill? And so I walked away because that's the last thing I want to feel. And when I came back, something amazing happened. The fear had been replaced with gratitude. And I realized that although that monthly amount was so small, the gesture was so much bigger. One of our listeners had casted her vote. She put her money where her mouth was. She said, keep going. Don't stop. Don't quit. I'm here and I'm listening. And it was such a powerful moment for me. We want to be audience funded. And there's a big difference between traffic and audience. Traffic is a number. It's how many downloads we get a week. Advertisers love it. They work in numbers. But for audience funded means we need an audience. People who participate and engage. And that could mean pitching in a dollar a month, writing us a review on iTunes, or following us on social media. You can take a few minutes out of your day to dramatically change the future of this program. So if that's you, if you're one of the people that are going to help this small little program stay independent and keep going, everything you need to know is in the description of this podcast, or you can go to our website, hellohumans.co, and there's a support button in the menu. Thanks for listening. Let's get on to the show. It's my belief that collectively, we've been told the lie that courage is the absence of fear, that there are these people out there who are just gifted with fearlessness, and we just need to move aside so they can step up to the plate. But courage is being afraid, being terrified, shaking in your boots and not knowing how you're going to muster the strength to do it. And then somehow figuring out a way to do it anyway. The world needs you to be courageous. You. Our guest today is Brene Brown. And she's gonna share her experience with fear, vulnerability, shame, and how she lives through that and finds the courage to do what she was called to do. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. My name is Sam Lamont. This is the How To Human podcast, production of Hello Humans. And here is Brene Brown. We've called this episode, Be Afraid and Do It Anyway. I hope you enjoy. It's okay, we can edit it out. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Renee. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So the first question to anyone living under a rock is who are you and how'd you get here to where you are? Oh, man. Um, I am like my name and everything, Renee Brown. Um, I am a research professor at the University of Houston, and I study vulnerability, courage, shame, and empathy primarily. I like to hear how people, it's easy to get an introduction, but I like to hear how people identify. Yeah, I guess researcher, storyteller, mom, partner, sister. You are the queen of fear (laughs) and vulnerability (laughs) and also bravery Yeah, um, as the counterpart to fear. And how did that come about? I don't know. In some weird way in my mind, it all makes sense, but it's, I guess it's hard to explain. Um, Like the deeper answer to that question is, I think I've been a pattern finder my whole life. I think pattern finding, um, trying to understand things that go together that people don't think go together and trying to understand how people's thoughts and behaviors and emotions all fit together was just kind of my my survival skill growing up. I think I was really good at reading people and, and understanding motivation and understanding. Um, I understood people and their behavior sometimes better than they did. Um, and so I think I've always been a pattern finder. And so I think I became, I, 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 after a long trajectory, people always make up this story like I went off and I went to college and I graduated and I got my PhD, but I didn't finish undergrad till I was 30. Um, I did a lot of hitchhiking, a lot of bartending, and a lot of kind of wild for a decade or so after high school. Um, but all of it was, I think, you know, I, I come from that nothing's wasted school of thought. I think it all made me who I am. 
And so I think I've always been a pattern finder and I think I've always been keenly interested in human behavior, emotion, and thought. And so I think this is just how it's all come together. With fear and bravery being such a mainstay of yeah. your mis- mission, yeah. how does it? How does the fear and the naysayers and especially like the shadowy critics that aren't even real yet, like yeah. people, people could judge me for this, yeah. how does it play a role in your life? Oh, I think I was defined by it, really. I think... Um, I think I was raised in a pretty shame-based family of origin. I think shame was how my parents were raised. And I think a lot of it, some of it's generational. Shame is very German-American, um, very no feelings, you know, I mean, to the point where no vulnerability to the point like you don't get sick, like you're not allowed to get sick or you don't wear goggles in the pool because that's for weak people. Like really, like you don't, you, we don't do training wheels in our family. You get on the bike and you ride the bike. Um, and so... I think there's two I think there's two ways to come out of that kind of upbringing. It, one is you just buy into it and then repeat it with your own family and your own life and your own you know your own kids or you step back and examine and think what what is that about? Like what is that about? And I always knew it was about fear, but it seems counterintuitive. You think that like no goggles, no training wheels, that's a braver course of action, but it's really more about fear. It's more about the fear of vulnerability, the fear of falling, literally failing, getting hurt, and spending a lot of energy trying to maxim, you know, trying to control what people think of you and trying to protect yourself from being hurt. And so I think I was curious about how that worked and why that worked that way. I do inventories often where I kind mm-hmm. of check in on my life yeah. and almost every single problem resentment can be traced back to fear, like when you start breaking it down. Oh, so yeah. it, it is a uh, active, it's kind of an active issue. That's always something I'm focusing on. Yeah. And I've too. noticed myself, mostly little league with my son brings out the worst in me. I mean, it really brings out the worst in me where I, I, when he uh, strikes out, I just am like so worried about him. I guess being weak. Yeah. And it's funny because like I'm not that way with my friends. And so I was wondering with parenting or just being a good parent to yourself, uh, which is something kind of I had to do without a dad is where does it come in where you let go? Oh, man. Parenting, not for the faint of heart. Um, And, I, you know, I've never known I've never known fear and vulnerability like I have around parenting. Like that is the ultimate for me exercise in it. And so that that moment where, you know, your child strikes out or won't even go to plate when they're called up because they're so afraid and everyone's looking at you and everyone's looking at him. And I think, I mean, I think a lot of it is cultural. I think we live, especially like, you know, you're here visiting me in Houston. Um, like baseball is everything. Football is life. Like this is like, this is the way we evaluate each other and ourselves. And I don't have, like my son's a, a water person. Like my people are not fast on the land. Like we're water people. So my son plays like water polo and swims. But, and so when he's in a situation where he has to do that, it's just, and I think it's about, here's what I think. Let me see if I can articulate it the right way. It comes from the purest place in our heart where we want to protect them from knowing shame and rejection and pain. And we want them to hit it over the back fence. And we want them to experience what it's like to be the hero on their team. And it comes from this good place, but then it's filtered through our own fear and our own shame. And I think what we forget is while they would love that moment, what matters the most to them is looking up in the stands after striking out and seeing us going, there'll be another chance. Proud of you for getting up there and trying. That's everything. That's the bigger moment for them. Um, and that's the bigger for moment for us. And I didn't grow up with that moment. Um, like, I just didn't grow up with that moment. And so what's interesting is we were all athletes and we all quit. And we were all pretty good athletes. But the pressure was so great on us to perform that we just couldn't sustain it. Like, I gave it up for Miller Lite. Like, yeah, yeah I gave it up for just partying and being wild and drinking. And, and so I think – we underestimate what the truest, deepest need is of our children, which is that thing that I always go back to to say, you're imperfect. You're wired for struggle and hard things, but you're beautiful and amazing. And you're worthy of love and belonging just like you are. 15 strikeouts, 15 home runs, it doesn't matter, just like you are. And so I think holding on to that in those tension-filled 
public moments where you know other parents don't operate from that place is really tough on all of us. I mean, I had to go stop going to my daughter played really like competitive club soccer through um, middle school and then she was a field hockey player. And I, I almost had to stop going to games just because I was so affected by the way other parents talk to their children. Yeah. Well, it, it's like pouring gasoline on all my fear yeah. and shame and inadequacy because uh, like we talked about earlier, like this world's not meant for the sensitive type. Like no. I'm, I'm having kind of an emotional reaction right now. It's, I just somehow want to save him from that because I see myself in him Yeah, where it's like he's shy yeah. and, but lovely. And I just want to like somehow save him from that. And we can't, but I, you can't. No. Yeah. yeah. I want to, I, yeah, no, it's just like right before we started, I was like, we're going to end right at what time? Because I'm going to try to like, my son's just back at school today after being sick and I want to go early so that maybe he doesn't have to go to PE because he's not feeling 100%. Like we want to do that. And I think the best gift we can give is to keep reminding them that we love them no matter what. And I tell like my son all the time, you know, you're a tender, empathetic, brave guy. You know, the next few years could be rough. Your whole life will be amazing. But here's how your friends show up in fear. Here's how sixth grade, seventh grade boys this is how they deal with fear. No one's less afraid than you right now, but they deal with it by hurting other people, putting people down, making fun of people. You're choosing to do something else with your fear and it's going to be tough and we just need to keep talking about it. It's hard. Yeah. One of my favorite parts about reading, especially your latest book, is you really took time. Um, you really took time to break down kind of words we take for granted, like fear and shame and courage, just as you put it, to have common language. Yeah. So when you talk about fear and shame and courage, I was curious if just for the program, you could kind of capture what they are, because you think of fear and you think of that natural survival instinct, which is probably a good thing to know if there's a tiger in the bushes. Right. But uh, more in the irrational fear, how do you define them? So I think I spend a lot of time, you know, I think fear, I think the right under fear, the person kind of pulling all the strings of fear is vulnerability. And I think vulnerability is the one that we have to really dig into defining if we're going to understand fear. So vulnerability is really simple from the data. It's uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So when your son's up for to bat or my son's up to bat, there's uncertainty, there's risk, and there's emotional exposure. You know, and so the thing is that most of us, when you say, you know, the world is, and we talked about this before the show started, the world, the world seems a hard place for really tender, sensitive people. And I think for those of us who are vulnerable, which is really everyone, but those of us who, you know, live into our vulnerability, we can lean into that uncertainty and risk sometimes, but we just need kindness around us as we try to figure it out. The problem is that a lot of people, the minute they go into uncertainty and fear and, and emotional exposure, that, that creates so much terror in people that they armor up and the way, and they grab two things, armor and weapons. How do I self-protect and how do I hurt you first before you hurt me? I've I've played that game. Me too. Where it's like, I don't want to be the victim anymore. No. Right. Right. And so I'm going to become the perpetrator of it. I'm going to beat you to the punch. And that tears at our soul just as much as the other piece does, is becoming a victims of meanness. You know, it's, it's, the same, it's the same tear. So I think vulnerability, so the problem with the vulnerability is that we don't want to be vulnerable because the world doesn't feel safe for it. And we think, why would I be vulnerable? Why would I, why would I go into a world or go into my day saying, I'm going to put myself in the way of emotional exposure, risk, and uncertainty? The problem is that all the good stuff we want from life is also vulnerability. Love, belonging, joy, creativity, innovation, trust, intimacy, courage, those are also born of vulnerability. So when we shut vulnerability down in order to protect ourselves, we unknowingly lock ourselves out of all the things that give meaning to our lives. So you see all of us walking around armored, you know, armored and armed, but we can't, and and we can't access what we need because it can't get through the armor. And so I think fear is driven by the inability to, in a productive way, manage our own vulnerability. I think that's what fear is. A fear is 
the inability to manage your vulnerability. I mean, there is real fear. There's like fear, like, you know. Someone might be following me. But yeah, like there's real like physical danger, fear, um, emotional danger. And I don't think we can be vulnerable unless basic physiological needs are met. We have to have safety and we have to have emotional and physical safety. But once those are met, and I don't take those lightly because those are not, those don't happen for everybody in the world, then vulnerability becomes a choice. And how are you going to walk through the world? And are you willing to never love so that you never know heartbreak? Yeah. Right. Are you willing to never put your art or your writing or your creativity out in the world so you never know criticism? Are you willing to never trust anyone so you never experience betrayal? And I think for many of us, I I think I spent the first 40 years of my life thinking that was a good plan. Like really trying to outrun <laughs> vulnerability and outsmart it. Like thinking, I'm going to get a little love, but no vulnerability. I'm going to get, and then I just realized that shit does not work. It does not work. I mean, like the brokenhearted are the bravest among us because they had the courage to love. Now I see courage as something completely different. What do you see courage as? The willingness to, sh- the willingness to show up even when you can't predict the outcome. I love a quote from Eddie Rickenbacker, which I'm sure people are sick of me saying, but it's without fear, there can be no courage. No, that's true. Yeah. I love that. And so it's like, if you are fearless and you jump over a grenade, well, it's not quite courage. No. In the sense that courage is the overcoming fear. Yeah. And uh, one of the practices I do for fear is I sit down, I get quiet and I invite it yeah. to do its best yeah. to stop me. And I invite it into my body. I bathe in the fear. And I just say, I want you to do your best to stop me. And then I do it anyway. I, I, oh, God, I love that. I, love, I have goosebumps. I love yeah. that. Show it who's boss. It yeah. is. And it's, um, was it Rumi that said, invite your fear to tea? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think, because I think once you examine it, it's, we use a metaphor of like an arena a lot just because I use this Teddy Roosevelt quote. And we always say, just you know, the season ticket holders for the big moments in our lives are always shame, comparison, and scarcity. You're always going to be fearful about shame. You're going to be fearful about comparison and scarcity, that you're not enough. You don't have enough. And you just need to look those people in the eye. And some people, like, I love what you're saying because I hear other people and even like other researchers and trained people saying, like, you just scream back at shame and fear and say, I will have none of this, you know? And I just think that is terrible advice. I think it's, I think I'm most effective when I say to fear and shame. I really understand how you work so hard to keep me safe and you work so hard to keep me protected from things that might hurt me. This is something I want to do anyway. So I'm going to do it. And I just want to let you know, I appreciate you trying to protect me, but this is something I need to do anyway. Yeah. A mentor of mine, Jonathan Gustin, Mm -hmm. he really changed the way I looked at it because I had, you know, I was very critical of myself, but I had a negative view of that criticism and I was very, and he just said, none of them are bad guys. They're all well-intentioned, the critic, the protector, you know, it's like the critic wants you to make good work yeah. and it might be abusive, but at, yeah. at its core, and it's really about having boundaries yeah. with these things That's exactly right. when they become unhealthy, but they're, they're all there to try and help you. You know, like I had a kind of inner protector that'd be like, don't make the work because then the critic's going to hurt you. Right. But it, it started holding me back from actually producing, which is something that's really important to me as a creative. Yeah, no, I think that I think it's so smart and I think one thing you said is so interesting to me. We're so much better at vilifying people than we are setting boundaries with them. So rather so we'd rather vilify an emotion than set a boundary with it. Just like I'd rather vilify people who think differently or believe differently than me than to set a boundary with them. You know, and so that advice you got is really good, but I think for people listening Setting boundaries either with people or with our own emotions is not the path of least resistance. Yeah. I mean, it's it, hard. It's hard. Yeah. Like learning to say no. Right. When you, when it's a good cause and you right. want to help, but you just, you can't do it the service that it deserves. Can't do everything. I love that my, my favorite um, definition of boundaries is from my friend Kelly Ray Roberts, who's an artist. And people were kind of ripping off her work and they were selling it on Etsy. And so she, before she became a, an artist, Um, And she's a really well-known artist now. But before she did that, she was an oncological social worker. So she has a master's in social work. So she's kind of trained in this. So she wrote a blog post saying, it was called, here's what's okay and not okay with my art. 
And it was like, it's okay for you to be inspired by it. It's okay for you to replicate it and hang it at your house. It's not okay for you to replicate it and sell it. Like it was just so like, here's what, like, I love that definition for boundaries. Here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. Yeah. Taking a conscious effort to kind of. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Being conscious of, of even the things I take for granted is so new to me and I'm so (laughs) in love with it. Like I love. What do you love about it? Well, I think the saying grace would serve the purpose for religious people, but I started, I've been working on a project, which is like my field guide of how to human. Cause at, at 22, I had to start from scratch. Right. I was in a really bad place and I had to be like, forget everything you think, you know, cause it's not working. (laughs) And so it was starting out with like breathing. So learning to breathe effectively and properly and taking time to just say, I'm going to breathe air because my body needs oxygen, or I'm going to eat this food because I need calories, or I'm going to get some sleep because I need to rest. And even taking these routines, I think routines are effective. Routines are so effective. It helps you. Yeah. It's there to waste less energy. Right. Like a boxer doesn't have to think about throwing a counterpunch. Right. He's trained to have right. a routine and it happens faster and uses less energy. They get less tired. But to take some time to break down the routine to make sure that it's a routine that you want. Because when I started this journey, I had a routine for every hour of the day. My day was full of routine and there was no real new conscious thought. And so, okay, so in your latest book, right in the beginning, you touched on something that I'm afraid to admit, where you said you had you've welcomed into the world the spirit of these ancestral voices, whether they be your favorite artist, and um, mm-hmm. that is a it's so important to many cultures, right? Like your ancestors. To me, I, in moments where I don't feel brave enough, or I don't feel this. I actually have a kind of like alter ego, which is I'm not German, but it is this German guy named Otto. And Otto is not afraid of anything. He just goes, this is easy, Sam, you know, and I like uh, Otto. Yeah, that's <laughs> I like fun. Otto too. So a- as a scientist, yeah. as a researcher, do you give yourself permission to adopt any practice that is practical, even if it's not real, you know, even if the... yeah. Yeah, but because who's to say what's real? Like, so for me, I have like my, I have my brain trust and it's full of people that I don't know, but I have their pictures up and I'm huge fans of their work and I study them and I learn from them. And sometimes I even have conversations with them. So I'll be stuck on a story and I'll look at Ken Burns, who's like this amazing documentary filmmaker and who I think is one of the most incredible storytellers of all time. And I'll be like, okay, Ken, how do I work through this story? Like, what am I, why am I rushing this? Why am I rushing this kind of second part of the story? And what is it that I'm trying to avoid? And how would Ken Burns do this? And then I maybe watch a clip of a documentary he did on the war, jazz or something. And I'll, I'll be inspired by the way he tells stories. And I'm not even, I'm not working on anything remotely close to what he's working on, but it helps me. And I think that you know, one thing about science, being a social scientist, I mean, I am a data-driven person, but I've always said for probably the last 10 years, I don't trust a scientist who doesn't respect and find value in the mysteries of faith in the world. And I don't trust a theologian who doesn't believe in science. You know, I just don't, I'm not going to buy into and participate in that kind of false dichotomy the world has set up between science and faith. Um, I have both. And I don't think I don't ever want to engineer the mystery out of the creative process. I'm not interested in doing that. So I think whatever works for people is a beautiful thing. Mm, I love that. Um, social science has got to be a handful for somebody who wants a degree of control over things because yeah. it's a newer kind yeah. of study and things are changing all the time. And they yeah. go, well, we did a bigger study. Yeah, and For sure. And, it's no, uh, and nothing can be certain when you're studying human behavior. It's not like you can create real causal relationships. You can say there's there's correlations, but you can't really say this in, for sure because you can't put people in labs and control every variable. And, yeah. I mean, we have, unfortunately, in the past and stuff like that, but ethically, you can't do that. And I wouldn't, obviously, but um, but I like it. There, you know, it, there's a part of me that, um, there's a part of me that really likes certainty and to look at things very rigorously through a data lens. Um, and have those conversations. But I've got an amazing research team and I think we're, we all appreciate the nuance of life. And the one thing that's really hard sometimes is I do like 90% of my work in organizations now where I'm teaching courageous leadership. I'm talking about culture change. 
and I'll go into a lot of tech companies and they're like, oh, vulnerability, this makes so much sense now. We're going to, we're going to engineer an app for that. And then we're going to like, <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you're hearing nothing I'm saying really. Um, Cause then they're trying to engineer the uncertainty out of vulnerability, which like obviously bankrupts vulnerability. But so I like a little mystery. I will. I like a little. Me too. Yeah. Weirdness. And I love, A, I love talking about like doing the deep dives with complete strangers and I like once you start you know vulnerability trust love yeah they're all things that they're all a gamble there's Total. no safe place to do it Total. so it's like you have to ante up trust right it's it's like I wish you know people are always like well you have to earn my trust you have to earn my respect but it's not you don't get the full effect if you're not giving it before it's earned, I feel like. Well, yeah, you know, it's really tricky because the biggest question we get from people is what comes first, trust or vulnerability? Are you vulnerable first and that's how you learn to trust people or do you trust them first and you're vulnerable with them? And I think the answer is yes and. I think you have to be brave somewhere. You can't get any guarantees off the bat. I didn't, I, you know, for me, I think about trust and vulnerability is very iterative. Like if we first meet, I'm probably not going to trust you with my darkest, hardest things. Right. I'm going to probably trust you with things that I'll survive if you're careless with them. If you're careless with these things I share with you, I'll be okay. But if you're if you're careful and tender with them, then I'll probably share more. And it builds over time. We always we use the metaphor of a marble jar for trust. That trust is like a marble jar. It grows over time, one small marble at a time, one kind gesture at a time. But you have to start. You have to be brave at some point to get the marble jar going. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of getting going, yeah. part of courage is permission. Yeah. And you wrote about, at one point, writing physical permission slips. Yeah, they're all over this office if you would <laughs> you do it before. Do. I do it all the time. Um, oh, wait, look. Just this will be funny. This is I'm stepping away from the mic for two seconds. And I'm opening my laptop to show Sam my permission slip for the week. Do you have a template? No. Oh. It's a post-it note. It's a post-it note that says permission to say no. That's my permission slip right now. I love it. For this week. Yeah, I just wrote it. I love it. Yeah, no, I still do it because it's just a way that, like, I think, let me close my laptop now so that's what you'll hear. Right now. <laughs> permission to say no to that email. I think as a parent, I was like, oh, yeah, well, you write permission slips. It's like you have permission to go to the zoo, but you still have to get on the bus. Like, you, still, I can't get you on the bus physically, but I can give you permission. So to me, a permission slip is it's one way of inviting fear in. So what's my fear? My fear is I'm overwhelmed. If I say no to people, I'm going to disappoint them or let them down. But I need to give myself permission, conscious permission to say no and to take on projects I love and not to do things I don't love. And so to me, it's about courageous intention setting. I give myself permission to do this. I still have to follow through and actually say no, but I'm far more likely personally to do that once I've really become conscious about the default yes I operate from. I, I have this little thing that I do. It's terrible. I'm going to admit it for the first time right here. I'm a yes, and then I resent the shit out of you. That's my, that's my. That's, I'm sorry that's, you resent me. No, that's, no, that's <laughs> not you. You were on my yes, I think that'd be really fun to do this list. So I would do it. But in order to do this today, I had to say no to other things. Mm-hmm. And then, then it's really hard because some people like then use my work against me. And they'll be like, well, you're not very wholehearted. Um, or, you know, this is not very vulnerable for you to say no. I'm like, yes, but I have permission to say no. That's funny. You should read my work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, they do. And then they like, they weaponize it for all, sometimes for all our creatives, which I think is almost everybody deep down. Oh, me too. I, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. All your work is connected uh, with worthiness, w- worthiness, yeah. <laughs> permission, yeah. action. Yeah. And so- like you decided to write at some point and I was wondering what was the transition from shameful childhood, you know, shame filled childhood and deep kind of self-loathing or inadequacy or not making the dance troupe. And then that's somehow bleeding into everything else. At what point did you just transition and like, what, like walk, walk me through it a little bit for, cause even you probably now worry about like, well, can I still do this? I think most creatives will look at their work and their first thought is, oh man, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what have I sure. done? And so walk me through the the journey and the continued exercise of worthiness, permission, action. 
Well, I think there's a lot of therapy. I mean, there was really a lot of, I remember sitting with my therapist, Diana, at one point, right when I was, I don't know, I, I think I'd written The Gifts of Imperfection already, and I think it was doing better than I thought it did, would. And I said, you know, something like, I'm, I'm maybe I'll do another book. That was kind of stressful, but it was also fun. And she's like, yeah, do you enjoy being a writer? And I said, I'm not a writer. <laughs> and she goes, I'm looking at your book on my shelf. And I was like, no, I just use words because it's the only tool I have to get my research across. And she's like, like, that's the definition of a writer, right? And I said, no, no, like, I'm not a writer. Like, a writer is somebody else. Like, a writer is like Pearl Buck is a writer or, you know, like, I'm not a writer. I'm just a person that has to do this. If there was another way to do it, I would do it. And I remember just thinking, like, I didn't want to own that because I didn't want to be held to that standard. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wanted oh, yeah. to be somebody. I wanted to, I like, don't don't call me a writer because then I'm going to have to make sure my dang, my modifiers don't dangle or whatever people, like, things I don't even understand. And so I think it's taken me years. And I think it was really after... I mean, I still get really like, I mean, this is my fourth, fifth book and I still get really, it still feels super vulnerable. It still feels scary. I still question myself. I think one thing that shifted for me when I started doing the research on imperfection, perfectionism and vulnerability is I came up with this mantra that at the end of my day, at the end of my week and the end of my life, I want to be able to say I contributed more than I criticized. And I think that means even of myself, I want to contribute more than I criticize myself, other people. And I have a really sweet spot in my life or my heart for the contributors, for the people who put their stuff on Etsy and who send out their writings and put their graphic novels online and like just put it all out there. Like, I just think it's amazing. Ah, she just said contributors. We have a rule about that. I got to make a pitch. Have you fallen in love with these two crazy individuals who make terrible business decisions like taking flights so we can do every interview in person and who turn down advertisement money, even though it is sweet and delectable and tempting? We've done that four times in the past two weeks. And uh, every time we say no to the money, it hurts. Well, we need contributors. We could really use some financial support to keep this going. We have a lot more programs in store, another podcast, a video program. And we're always featuring stories written by just regular people on our website, Hello Humans. So if you can, pitch in a buck a month. If you want to pitch in more, there's some perks like getting to ask our guest a question and getting to record a message on our podcast, which comes at the end. And all right, whatever. Patreon.com slash Hello Human is the direct link. Or you can just go to our website, HelloHumans.co and click the support button in the menu. Back to the show. You know, that's, there's that, like, I have this superpower that I don't talk about very often, but I actually do. I use the word superpower too. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. I totally have a superpower and I'm very clear on what it is. Um, And I try to use it only for good. I don't have to see or know people for very long to understand what makes them work and what makes them feel vulnerable and what makes them scary or scared. It's like that movie. Remember, what was that movie? Like The Sixth Sense or something where that kid was like, I see dead people. Yeah. Bruce Willis. Yeah. Bruce Willis. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like I see scared people. And so- I started realizing that the people that I thought were tough and were like strong and badasses were this most were the scared people. Like were the people that were just critical and judgmental and shamey to other people. And that the people that were putting their like earrings on Etsy and that were putting their work online or sharing it with people or putting their pottery out at, you know, first Saturdays um, or like an art thing that we have here in Houston, those were the brave people. Like those were the brave people. And I was like, what is happening? Um, and it just made me be want to be one of the brave people. Yeah. Yeah. My superpower is confidant. I am, I don't know why, but like I'm the person where two warring friends will tell me their deepest secrets, knowing Ooh. that I'm not going to tell the other party or that when um, I go to meet someone's family, like I'm hearing about the grandma's ugliness of the divorce and they're like, I didn't know that. And uh, so that's my superpower. I think it's part of being a good storyteller is to be able to collect people's stories without abusing them. Yeah, um, for sure. But using them. Yes, for for sure. uh, Yeah, yeah. I sometimes, someone said to me when I was doing all my shame research and that's all I was doing was my interviews about shame and people would tell me like, 
the hardest things I'd never, people would tell me things they'd not heard, told their partner of 30 years, you know? Um, and someone said, you're like the sin eater on the twilight zone. <laughs> and I was like, what? And they're like, there's like this twilight zone episode where this guy is like the sin eater and he goes from village to village eating the sins of the village. And I was like, okay, that's terrible. First of all. And I just feel like it's such an honor for people to share that kind of stuff with you. Like, I think it makes me really lucky because I feel like part of shame resilience is normalizing. Yeah. Like everyone has a story that'll break your heart. And the more you understand that's true, the bigger your heart is. Like, you know, you're not alone during hard things. Like I, I think, so I don't think of my, so I've got that vault kind of thing too. Um, and I do think it's about being a good steward of people's stories. Yeah. And being willing to, to give too. Cause that's part yeah. of, that's part of receiving the it vulnerability is. is really opening the door. Totally. God, that's, that's like, I feel like that's part of my mission is to get more people vulnerable in the world because there's so many things that are either taboo or not okay or not safe. Yeah. You know, like if my coworkers ever found this right. out, I'd be done. And so there's a ton of stuff where we just feel like unique and alone. Yeah. But most of them are so universal. Yeah. No, I yeah. mean, so universal. Even if it has different, like a, a different facade on the outside, yeah. like at its base, it's really like the same stuff, mostly with fear. No, right? it, it is. Yeah. And that's shame. Shame is a really, shame is really a, a very formidable opponent in some ways because shame only works when you feel alone. So the way that shame works is that you, it, shame hates having words wrapped around it. If you talk about your shame, shame loses its power. So shame works very hard to keep you quiet because that's the only way it derives its power. And so once, you know, someone like you is putting out a podcast and talking about things that we're not supposed to talk about and it feels normalized for people and people can feel empathy, like I'm not the only one, um, shame can't hold on anymore. But it works very hard to keep you silent because that's where it drives its power. And so we just need to have these conversations. I always tell people like, no matter how weird you think it is, sounds, smells, does, there are a million other people that have this experience. It's just you're part of the human experience. Yeah. You know? And so I love that how the human is like, there's just, we're so much more the same than we are different. Yeah. Yeah. We really are. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I'm really like genuinely interested about right now is so when I started the Sam kind of 2.0, yeah. you know, like, wow, I've uh, nobody wants to talk to me right now. I am an awful, selfish, terrible person. I was wondering about the overlap between where worthiness and I am OK can work together with, wow, some stuff kind of does have to change. You know, I really need to start. Yeah. Um, yeah, giving more than I receive, I right. really start have to thinking about other people and their needs. And so I was wondering about how you approach uh, a necessary change, yeah, while still being like I'm worthy and I'm okay and like I really am okay as is, sort of, yeah, yeah. So I think that it's a really it's a question I get all the time, and it's such an important question. I think I've never seen in my career, and we, you know, we just maxed out, we just hit 200,000 pieces of data. I've never seen in my career anyone successfully use shame and self humiliation or belittling as an effective agent for change. So I don't think you can shame people, including yourself, into changing. And so it goes back to Carl Jung, kind of his idea that we must love the thing we want to change. And so when I say you're worthy and you're enough, that's the platform for change. That's, you know, people, people don't, when you, you know, the examples you gave is I need to start thinking about my actions, how my actions affect other people. I need to give in, not just receive. I need to be more empathetic. I need to be more connected. Not being empathetic, taking and not giving, selfishness is not driven by the belief that we are better than or worth more. It's driven by a lack of self-worth. It's, you know, it's like, it's like when people always say like, why do you think, why should, why, why would you tell a narcissist that they should believe in themselves and that they are enough like they are? Don't you think they think they're too much already? And I'm like, you have a very, people who believe that have a very surface understanding of narcissism. Narcissism of all the personality disorders is driven more by shame than anything else. Narcissism is 
the shame-based fear of being ordinary. And the, the, the key to it is not to knock someone down and humiliate them and shame them and remind them of their smallness. The key to healing it is reminding people of their worth and that they don't have to do extraordinary, great, huge, grandiose things to be worthy of love and belonging. They have to be authentic and real and vulnerable and human. And so I've yet to see an instance, and I think I've seen a lot, where someone needed needed to be shamed into, shamed down to size. It's just not the way it works. And so I love Harriet Lerner's work. Um, she'd be a great person on this podcast because talking about how to human, like she has a new book on apologizing that just like freaked me out. Um, I thought it was a really good apology. great skill to have. Yes. And I thought yeah. I was a good apologizer. And she was like, dang, girl, you need some work. <laughs> um, but she always says that everyone needs a platform of self-worth from which to see change. And I just think that's true. I just think that's true. I think that shame is much more likely to be the cause of destructive, selfish, hurtful behaviors than it is to be the cure for it. Yeah. I had a friend who just kind of reached out. He just needed a second opinion. And it's kind of like, let's take a look at everything going on in my life. And uh uh-oh. Okay. never mind. (laughs) Let's take a look at everything going on in my life and figure out why I'm miserable right now. And I said, okay. And it was kind of, he was doing stuff where he's like a really sensitive, loving guy. I mean, one of the most loving people I ever know. And he was kind of like out of fear stringing this girl along. And I said, well, you're miserable because you're a good guy doing bad stuff. And there's a huge disconnect. I mean, I said, you know, and this might not be true, but I said, if you were like a true narcissist, it wouldn't bother you because you're like like more in line with your nature. And that's, you know, there's something to be said about that, but there's this huge disconnect between who you are at your core and how you're acting. That's the, you know. I mean, and that chasm, that that cognitive dissonance, acting outside, not not living into our values, but acting outside of them, that causes a misery like people do not understand the level of misery that causes. When you're acting outside of what is true to who you are, nothing is right. Nothing's good. I asked a couple of our patrons, the people mm-hmm. like supporting this yeah. whole thing. Uh, if they had questions that they needed to ask you. And I we got some really good ones. The first one was uh, someone who is kind of rebuilding right now. And they said, is it possible to truly love in a romantic sense? Is it possible to truly love others if you don't quite love yourself yet? I, I, I'm, I don't think we can give what we don't have. And I think you can build. You can, you can love someone and build and be building that love for yourself and that person. I don't think you have to like, you know, break up with someone and make sure your self-love is intact and go out, but you got to work on yourself. I remember, I'll tell a very personal story. I remember seeing a therapist early in my marriage um, and telling her like, I think we're going to get a divorce. We've been married for six months. We dated off and on for seven years then got married. And I was like, I just, he's, I don't think he's really what I'm looking for. I don't think I'm definitely not what he's looking for. It just is not, it was a mistake. And I kept saying more. And then I remember her saying to me, I think, I think it is, I think your marriage is in trouble. And I was like, what? Um, like, it's okay for me to say that, but why are you saying that? And she said, I think he likes you so much more than you like you. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be uncomfortable. I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? My favorite therapist. I wanted to fire. Yeah. The good um, ones always, you want to fire the good ones. Another one which I so identified with at various points in my life was that she's truly, she truly loves this person and sees their good side, but knows that it's not right and knows that she needs to leave. And that's terrifying. I was wondering if you had anything to to speak to that hurdle, which yeah. I think a lot of us have gone through where mm-hmm. it's like, you're not a bad person. You're a good person. You're just not quite. You're not my person. I'm going to lean into what I lean into every day of my life when I, I have to have a lot of hard conversations. I think in my role as a CEO, as in my just in different roles, I have to have hard conversations all the time. And the thing I hold on to the most, and it's super simple and probably self-helpy, but I think I'm sure I heard it in an AA meeting somewhere, somewhere along the way, but clear is kind. Unclear is unkind. Yeah. It's unfair. Yeah. It's just unkind. Yeah, I think that was like my friend who was kind of stringing along this girl. Yeah. It's like, you do her a favor. Yeah. 
to let her go look for somebody who's yeah. going to give her what she needs. Yeah. And, and love her for what she has. Like clear is kind, unclear is unkind. And we can be both, we call it, I call it living big, B-I-G, boundaries, integrity, and generosity. And the way that we are the most generous with people in our lives, and I want to be a generous person, I can tell you're a generous person, is to always Now, ask, maybe. Most now, of the time. Yeah. 80% of the right, time. Right. Me too. I'm yeah. shooting for 82. Um, but what boundaries need to be in place for me to be in my integrity and be generous toward others? And so I think so much of it is about our fear of the vulnerable, hard conversation. But clear is kind, unclear, unkind. That's amazing. My mom, who's queen bee of this operation, mostly because she gave me life, uh, <laughs> had several questions. Uh, where did I put the keys to my truck? Which she since <laughs> answered. <laughs> she thought you might be able to help with that. Um, what gives you great hope for the world, for your relationship during the hard stuff, which relationships can be hard or kids when they're jerks? What gives you hope? I believe people are essentially good. I do. I think we're terrible when we're in fear. And I think we're in fear right now collectively. But I think people are good. I believe in the goodness of people. And, and P.S. Your mom gave me life too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she may have really given you life, but like her work, um, I think I write about in Rising Strong, her work really turned me upside down. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, me too still. And the, the second one was, how have you come to – love your body, your image, you know, who you are. I think that's part of being sensitive is starting to pick apart at mm -hmm. all the little, oh, you know. I mean, I think that's a practice for me. That's an everyday practice. Yeah. That's a like, like I try to live by one little, I like the short impactful sayings that I have to live by. The, the bigger stuff, I it's harder for me to hold on to. So my whole thing is talk to myself like I talk to somebody I love. Mm. And so Sometimes it sounds like bullshit when I'm saying it to myself. I don't actually believe it. I'm like, you're beautiful and you're na-na. And I'm like, whatever. Um, but I really try to talk to myself like someone I love. And I think that the body image, the body image stuff, you know, aging is new for me. Um, yeah, the hairline is new for me. Is, yeah. I mean, <laughs> That's like, a new bridge to cross. Yeah. No, it's like, yeah, yeah all this stuff. And so I think I just... I don't know if this is good or bad. I've never thought about it before because I've never said it out loud. But I think I just try to be the person I want to be. I try to, you know, I remember one time talking to a therapist about, I think my fear of flying has gotten so great now that it's going to be problematic. And she said, but you keep showing up and getting on the plane, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to cancel a trip or anything. And so I just keep getting on the plane. Yeah. I just keep showing up in my own life and I keep... I don't say no to opportunities because I don't – I wish I could lose five pounds first or I wish I could have cuter hair, get my gray covered or, you know, have a better outfit. I just keep showing up um, imperfectly messy. And then sometimes I'll look at when I showed up and be like, what the hell were you thinking showing up like that? But then I'm like, you know, I just go back to – I don't know. I really want to contribute. Yeah. I heard uh, in what you just said that like there's a difference between – like you said, bullshit, but there's a difference between bullshit or like faking it mm -hmm. or fraudulent between just being in that uncomfortable practice. You know, it's like if you start working out, that's uncomfortable. If you start telling yourself nice things, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. But it's part of it. It you is. Know, it's okay to be uncomfortable. A lot of good things start uncomfortably. That's it. And for some reason, the fake it until you make it part doesn't work. That saying doesn't work for me for some reason. I hate the word fake it. I hate the word fake it because it makes it feel like it's like it's comfortable. Just well, make it. To start the journey of like, wow, I want to be this kind of partner. Yeah. And my base instinct yeah. is not to be. Right. Like just the desire on its own means that it's not fake. It's not fake. Just because it doesn't feel real. Right. That's it. That's yeah. it. That's totally for me because the discomfort that I feel when I'm talking nice to myself and it doesn't – and it feels – I'm not used to it. It doesn't feel fake. It's real. Like I want to do this for myself, but it's just, I'm not faking it. I'm just pushing through the discomfort. Yeah. And I have a very high tolerance for discomfort. I'm getting – it's yeah. like – it's endurance. You get better I'm at it. I'm super – I'm super tenacious. Yeah. And you can start to recognize where the good uncomfortable yes. is. Yes. Where it's like, ooh, this person yes. just told me something that really makes me not want to be their friend anymore. But I needed to hear that. Yes, me too. Yes, that's exactly right. And I'm an efficient person. So I'm like, well, 
I can put this off for three days or I can have this conversation right now. Yeah. Uh, so your time's limited and we are at that time. So oh, to, to end yeah. it real quick, this is how I like to end it. I'm rephrasing it almost every yeah. time. Um, but if you were to sustain amnesia uh-huh. uh, through like a head injury, yes. what is the recorded message you would want to hear that would be like everything you needed to know to start off? Everything you know to be true that should be your kind of baseline. Oh my God, what a crazy good question. Um, Just try. It's okay to be like totally messed up. It's on the spot, big question. Like I had amnesia and I don't know how to function in the world and I just need like a little primer, like a little video, probably my vulnerability TED Talk. Watch the vulnerability TED Talk? Yeah. Okay. Because then I would know exactly what I thought was important and I would know that I really don't like being vulnerable, but I need to be. And then I would know I would know what I thought before I had amnesia. And I would be like, oh, that's too bad. I need to be like that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I want to be respectful yeah, of it. Yeah, of course. Thank you. This was so fun. I'm glad I said yes. I'm glad you did too. Me too. This is Maureen from Hartford. And one thing I know for sure is that healing takes a long time. But it does come if we work for it and if we're patient. It might take years or even decades, but it comes, maybe not fully, but enough healing to allow for even more healing. Hello, hello humans. It's Lori from Cincinnati again. This is what I want to say, and it doesn't come from me, but it's sayings that I have found that really ring true for me and anyone who's recovering. Give yourself the space to hear your own voice, your own soul. Too many of us listen to the noise of the world and get lost in the crowd. Stand strong, live by choice, not by chance. Work to grow, not compete. Choose to listen to yourself, not the opinions of everyone else. Angel Chernoff. That's it for episode 10. And those are the voices of people who contribute $20 or more a month or people who have sent in stories to us to post on our website. We wanted to know who these crazy people were. I think it's amazing. I hope you have a great day and remember to be a good audience member of whatever art you like. It means the world to us. So anyone who's creating things that you enjoy, let them know, write a comment, like their posts, whatever you can, because it's really how we survive. Until next time. My name is Sam Lamont, and you just listened to the How to Human podcast.